My guest this week is JJ Jexelik, co-founder of one of the most influential and innovative electronic groups of all time, Art of Noise. Art of Noise had a string of top 20 hits in the 1980s, including instrumental Peter Gunn, which earned them a Grammy, and their cover of Kiss with Sir Tom Jones. One of the first musicians to fully embrace the Fairlight synthesizer, JJ was part of Trevor Horn's legendary production team, and they worked on albums such as ABC's Lexicon of Love and Malcolm McLaren's Duck Rock Record. In fact, the list of artists JJ's actually worked with during the 80s and late 90s is endless. Uh, anyone from a synth pop band Frankie Goes to Hollywood to prog rockers, yes. It's a very long list. In fact, JJ himself often forgets who who he's worked with over the years, um, and it's something that we discuss during our conversation. Art of Noise actually are playing two uh, very rare shows at the Jazz Cafe in London on the 4th and the 5th of January 2023, uh, and I'm sure tickets for these will be flying out, so I would act on this now because it fantastic chance to see this legendary act. So without further ado, here he is, the amazing and very talented JJ Jexelik. Oh, so, so thanks for joining me today. And I'd, I'd like to start, if I may, talking about the forthcoming Art of Noise gig at the iconic venue Jazz Cafe. Um, which I believe at top of the head, I think it's on, is it the 4th um, and 5th of January? Is that correct? Yes, cor- correct. And I and we are now known as in this performance mode as Art of Noise slash Revision slash AV set. Just straight. Very I like, catchy. I like and, it. Um, we like it a lot. Yeah. So what, what can fans expect from this um, gig, which I know has been really low, anticipated? What can fans accept from the gig? <laughs> uh, well. All the classics. Well, yeah, not necessarily. That's a really interesting question because Gary and I have been musing over what we're going to present and how we're going to, to do it. And essentially, we are going to spend a bit of time talking about some of the tracks and how we put them together because we did a little bit of that at the British Library a few years back now and it went down very well. Um, and it, we are perhaps misguided in the notion that rather than just hearing the track, um, we're hoping that people will be interested in how we stumbled across or created the uh, the idea in the first place and then how it ended up uh, being as the finished article. And interestingly, we've gone back and done a bit of digging around and found bits that work. And there are other bits we go, we have no idea how we did that. That must be the, the fun side of it then, sort of seeing, you know, um, how you're going to, like you said, present the songs. I mean, it must be. Um, I mean, so was the British Library the last um, performance you did together as as Art of Noise? Uh, yes, and Anne was in that one. Anne's not in participating in that one, which is one of the reasons why we have this rather abstruse naming convention. Um, and so it's a different kind of show. But you know, British Library. We went. Then we went to Japan. We did a gig in Liverpool. Um, and rather than just playing through all the songs, I did a bit of a chit chat about some of the sampling we used to do, and um, it was good fun, actually. Yeah. And, and and like you say, um, 
figuring out how you're going to form the show, you might write the whole list of tracks down and go, it'd be great to do this, great to do that. We're also working with a guy in Chile, Santiago, Chile, who has been helping us rework some of the tunes. Um, and he's, he's a genius. Um, and um, by the name of uh, uh, Raimundo. And um, we're working with him to slowly but surely kind of look at tracks, take them to bits and kind of modernize them in a way, I suppose. But that's kind of work in progress, really. We, we're not still not sure how that will work. Um, but we got a good idea of where we're going with it. But with these things, you know, you, you kind of <clears throat> put your... Um, with these shows, you, you make a list and then you start tearing the list up and you move things around and then you throw things away and then you add things in and it's a constantly evolving thing and you go, okay, ah, this feels good. Yeah. And then you start looking at it all and, and then you tear it all to bits again and you're constantly rebuilding it, take it to bits, rebuild, and then you finally come up with something that you, you think will work. Yeah. You must be excited to be, to be playing again then on stage. Yeah, well, it's been a while, and um, it's uh, the Jazz Cafe is quite an intimate uh, venue. It's not a huge capacity, so uh, there's an opportunity to have uh, quite a bit of engagement with the audience. And and these gigs are, are there a celebration of it's I believe it's the 40th anniversary of Art of Noise. Does it does it feel like 40 years have passed, or to you? Because I know you you've done so much in your career does it feel like yesterday to you or does it feel like uh, 40 years <laughs> does it feel like 40 years can i be evasive and say yes and no <laughs> no that's a good answer which i mean yes there's a moment when you think i remember working on this with gary um all those years ago in an instant and i can remember how it how it the shape of it and how it felt and at the time and then a bit later thinking, um, as I mentioned before, I have no idea how we actually did that, but hey, it worked at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I, suppose, I suppose my biggest regret really is that um, I didn't keep a diary. So I have absolutely little idea of, of what one did and when one did it. Well, that was going to be one of my questions because I was going to ask you if you'd ever been considered writing the book because I'm sure you've got, I could imagine so many great stories. Uh, of, you know, it's funny you should mention that because I, I am talking to someone about that this afternoon, and it's not a high priority, but it's something that I thought that I might like to do. It would have just been a lot better if I kept a diary, to be honest, because there are tracks um, that are appearing now, and I'm thinking, ooh, that was me. I mean, I'd forgotten, for example, that I worked with the Boomtown Rats. Um, I'd forgotten that I worked with Banana Rama, and oh, wow. these things just pop up. Um, and I'd forgotten for a while that I'd done any work with um, Madness. But <laughs> it's oh, wow. um, because basically, what tends to happen is people look at the the biog and everything. And if I didn't say it's on in the biog, then it doesn't appear. But uh, <laughs> seen it. Uh, so there's all this stuff, and um, working with people like. Um, John Parr worked on his um, St. Elmo's Fire album. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and yes, as, as mentioned, that not having 
a diary. I can't dip into it and um, refer back, but yeah, you can't go back in time. No, and I and, and going back in time, I I remember when I first discovered your music, and it kind of was oh. Maybe that's what's got me into electronic music itself. And I, I wondered, when did your love affair of electronic music start? What sort of things were you listening to? Yeah, what was I listening to? What was I listening to? Um, I, I think... <laughs> um, what was I listening to? There was a period when I loved, and still do quietly and secretly, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Oh, yes. Absolutely love that stuff. It was joyous, interesting, and I had no idea it was going on, but it kind of kind of captured my imagination. Then at school, lots of my fellow students were playing things like Credence Clearwater Revival, Jimi Hendrix, um, the original T-Rex, and latterly... T-Rex, um, Tyrannosaurus Rex, beg your pardon, and then T-Rex. So had a very broad set of inputs, if you like, and they all laughed at me when I was playing Herb Alpert, but was at the same time then listening to Eric Clapton and also became a big Bob Dylan fan for a while. I had 11 of his albums at one point. Um, so... It would be fair to say, I think, that uh, my interest in music was general, quite Catholic. And if something just grabbed me, I just was interested. So Credence Clearwater Revival, great tunes. Um, and you'd hear something playing in a common room or something. You'd go, what is that? And uh, Cream, love Cream. Uh, badge, Crossroads, all these things. I remember them as if fresh as, you know, fresh as day. So when I ended up moving to London after I finished my degree, um, I was taking some time off and uh, the guys I was sharing a house with used to go down to the Stapleton Tavern in Crouch End and they had a lot of live music and there was a band there called Landscape and they were all session musicians, notably Richard Burgess and Andy Pask, uh, Burgess on drums, Pask on bass, um, and Andy Pask now is playing in the Hans Zimmer live orchestra, for example, and Richard Burgess, he uh, did a um, production and worked on things like the Buggles, and I ended up humping his gear around for him, and listening to the sort of music that they were listening to at home, which was, interestingly, craft work, um, music for 18 musicians, um, uh, played by, can't remember, what's the name of the guy who wrote that? It's Steve Reich. Yeah, yeah, so I've listened to Steve Reich's music for 18 musicians. I've seen that two or three times, I think. So oh, although wow. that's, not, that's not electronic, it's... <laughs> In its form, it's a kind of set of sequences, but they're played in the most extraordinary it's way. It's in that way, yeah, definitely. Um, and perhaps if you heard it for the first time, you might think it's a, a, a sequenced um, piece of music. Um, so, very varied. The, the Chris Heaton, the keyboard player, his friend um, from 
his school days, I think, up north was a chap, was Rod Templeton, who wrote Thriller, I think, amongst other things, for Michael Jackson. So Chris was listening to Michael Jackson. Wow. Um, he was also into Chic. So I had a really, really broad input. And, and the, the interest with the band, their interest was basically, how does it sound? What's the groove? What's the hook? And they, they would all just discuss all these various bits of music and wouldn't go, ah, oh, you know, I hate that I'm not listening to it. They go, oh, that's interesting. God, that's, that's an interesting chord change. Ooh. And so I think with them, Boss Gags, what a, what a great sounding record he made. You know, it's just um, low down. What a, what a great record. Um, and they had, when we set up their PA, they had a, uh, a kind of music bed, which probably came off cassette. Hmm. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. odd source. But it had all these tracks on it, and that's how I got into listening to all this stuff. Um, and they were into wide, wide range of music and styles. You know, if 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 it was good, they liked it. We sort of listened to it. So um, I listened to all that stuff. I listened to all of it, not really knowing about how it was made or what, who did what or when or how, but kind of being captivated. And you know that thing about. You go and see a performance about, are you drawn in? Are you, are you captivated yeah. by it? Is, is your attention dragged into it? And then you suddenly find yourself immersed in it and you don't really know what happened. I think that's one of the most exciting things Absolutely. in the world, really. You just don't know. And you find yourself there. You go, oh, that was interesting. What happened? And you find that, that you've, what do they call it? Suspending disbelief. That's right. Um, and um, so... A lot of classical music as well. Always like classical music. Big fan of uh, Beethoven. Been to so many Beethoven concerts over the years. Um, and then getting into the different orchestras and how they sound and different conductors. And uh, I remember seeing the Russian National Orchestra, if one could mention them, um, at the proms once. And they were the most extraordinary sound I'd ever heard in my entire life. They're absolutely amazing. And uh, I was talking to a music teacher about that. And he said, well, they just practice. They don't do other gigs. Um, that's all they do. Yeah, uh, yeah, they, don't do yeah. they don't do film music. They just tour and they play. Whereas a standard orchestra playing at the proms would come up and probably have two rehearsals with, with the uh, conductor of the day. And that's it. Off they go. Because they can read well and they know what they're doing, which is even all the more remarkable. But with the, the Russian national... The strings were just extraordinary. Their, their entries, their holds, their releases, were, and their vibrato was just extraordinary and um, unique, actually. I don't know if I answered your question, but as oh, well, you answered it perfectly. It's just like such a healthy taste in all these different sorts of music that's going into your. So, when did you actually start um, making music yourself? What was your first instrument? Uh, very, very first instrument and short lived career was playing clarinet at school and unbeknownst to me my eyesight wasn't very good and I couldn't see the notes terribly well and didn't enjoy it and then I dropped the bell on my clarinet and broke it and that was kind of the end of that really um didn't enjoy it um then tried playing percussion wasn't very good at that and um didn't have the dexterity really so I suppose I used to put cassettes together like we all did in those days and yeah. found a way of, of editing. The big thing that I was into 
was uh, my parents at the time had a an eight mil color um, camera, movie camera, and I'd edit all the films together with a little editing block and a cutter and a scraper and glue. And I'd spend hours and hours and hours editing these videos together. And I realized actually just the other day that when it came to editing sound on the Fairlight, it was, it was, I saw it completely. I understood it without giving any further uh, instruction because I kind of seen it all before in, in terms of um, frames in the movies. When did you, when did you get your first Fairlight? Um, well, I borrowed Jeff Downs's for some years, and then Trevor got one and gave it to me to lend it to me, and then I bought one in nineteen eighty-five. Wow. I had another one actually. I bought a Series Three in about nineteen eighty-eight, so I had two at one point. Fantastic. I mean, I think the younger listeners won't understand that how complex that must have been trying to learn something like that with this is years before youtube or google i mean what you must have had to sort of to how to figure out that machine must have just been mind-boggling it was odd because contrary to popular opinion as i remember it the manuals were quite thin mm. and there was a, a telex number so you could telex oh, wow australia and get help but the main thing that worked was uh, psycho systems who was selling them Peter Gabriel's company, and they had an office in Paddington. Every month, I think, they'd have get-togethers, and everybody would talk about what they were doing. Um, and that was great. Uh, and I met my longtime friend, Blue Weaver, there, who was, you know, Bee Gees keyboard player, co-writer of How Deep Is Your Love, and he had one. And he and I hit it off straight away. And um, I spent a lot of time with him. It was, it was the blind leading the deaf, I think. And I, I, part of that thing for me, latterly, I suppose, was the old imposter syndrome, because I was slightly ahead of the curve um, in knowing a little bit about what was going on. And when I would go into sessions, people thought I was a genius. And I was sitting there all the time, worried that I might get discovered. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, Richard Burgess said to me, there's two things you have to do, really, is arrive early. And if you can't do something, say you can't do it. There's nothing worse than time wasting in a studio and going, oh, yeah, 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 I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. And two hours later going, yeah, I haven't got it. You go, no, I can't do that, but I'll sort it out for next time. And that was really great advice. That's, that's so good advice, especially these days where a lot of people just, that's the first thing they say, oh, I can do that. And then they, they kind of realise it's, you know, it's trickier than it, than it looks. So that, that's good advice. Well, exactly, and I think I think that um, there's a guy who helps me out uh, locally, lives in town, um, Dave, and he he knows about Ableton, for example, which I'm using now, and um, I'll fire off some questions for him. I'll go and have a session with him or something, and he'll go, "Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know, but I'll let you know when I find out." And so I like that, you know, yeah. because you're not wasting time going, "Okay, well." Park that. We'll come back to that. If you find the answer, great. Don't worry. It's not a, a deal breaker. Um, let's carry on. And then he might send me a letter, email going, I found the answer. Look at this. Look at that. And you go, OK, great. Um, so you're constantly adding to your... He learned something from me because I asked a tricky question. He said, I've never done that before. 
Um, and he's teaching me how to do things and I'm asking tricky questions. And between us, our, the kind of pool of knowledge that we're developing is, is getting better and higher and deeper and deeper and deeper, our understanding of what's going on. There's nothing worse than sitting in a session and saying, can you do that? And someone goes, sure, and then waits 45 minutes going, I can't find the button anymore. I don't know what's happened. You go, I haven't got time for that, you know. I know that's that's the modern day thing is that that whole kind of uh, fake it till you make it, which is a very thing at the moment, isn't it? But like you <laughs> said, something worse. It, it, this wastes everybody's time. Where if you're dishonest and then say, "Well, like you said, I'll figure it out," then that's what that's what everyone wants, isn't it? Well, because what was the expression you use? Fake it until you make it. Fake it. Yeah, that seems to be what the kind of people do these days, rather than you know. Is it quick to jump in? Oh, I can do that, like you said, but then actually, you know, wasted an hour trying well, to get work. Yeah. Or, or more. And the problem with that approach is that if you're, it's all very well and good, I think, if you're doing something and someone isn't spending money on it and you've got time and you want to work it out, great, fantastic. I don't have a problem with that. But if, as soon as the pressure's on and you're in a, studio like we work back in the day which is costing hundreds of pounds a day and you're you know not cheap and the gear's not cheap there's no room for time wasting yeah you have to you have to be on it you know and one of the things that i learned from working with trevor horn was that i soon got the message pretty early on from the people he was working with when i was in the studio and maybe not active at that moment but i'd be sitting around listening people would come in and they go, what key is this? Okay, diddly, 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 and they'd be off. And they and uh, Trevor would ask them to do something. They'd play it, and he'd go, that's brilliant. Okay, now we want to change this, and we want to change that, and they'd be finished and done, rather than faffing about and going, um, okay, so uh, if I do this another 15 times, I might get it. They were there, on the money, every time, you know. So, so going back to, um, so obviously we've discussed the, the anniversary, the 40th anniversary. So... Just tell us briefly about how the formation of, of Art of Noise came about. There are many stories out there, and all of them are true. Um, what is it they say? You know, not the fake it until you make it. Repeat it until it becomes true. I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's a pithy phrase there or something. Right. Anyway, repetition, repetition creates truth. I don't know. Anyway, we were working on the Yes 90125 album uh, that had Owner of a Lonely Heart on it. Um, and Gary and Trevor have been working on that album on and off for a year I think and I was in and out in and out in and out I realized fairly early on that whenever I got called into session it's essentially because they got a bit stuck and they wanted something a bit weird and off the wall and they go let's get JJ and see what he comes up with um, and that worked for me in most instances um, and one night it was a Friday evening been a long week Gary said to me oh stay behind I've got this idea and he had to persuade me to stay because I was tired and I wanted to go home. And we worked until about three o'clock in the morning. And he'd recorded Alan White playing drums in Air Studio on a drumeriser using the talkback mic only. And he'd mixed it together and we put it into the Fairlight and we just suddenly realised we had an awesome sound. And I looped it together and people say it was the first digital drum loop of its kind. I don't know whether it's true or not, but we just did it. We didn't stop and go, oh, we've just created the first anything. We were going, this is cool. We like this. Uh, and off we went. And um, we just started adding weird and wonderful noises. Gary and I did some vocals. 
um, of varying success. And then he played the cassette to Trevor on the Monday, I think. And he said it needs some music. And he got Anne in and she started playing keyboards. And that's how it all started off, really. Yeah, I, I'm interested to, to sort of see how you guys work. So would you would you go into the studio with a kind of demo kind of like pretty much formed of how you wanted it to sound? Or was there a lot of kind of improvisation, you know, allowing those sort of happy accidents to happen in the studio? Uh, I would say, uh, without being facetious, both. Yeah. Sometimes we we sit in the tape copying room, which was free, right, working things out. And then we go into the studio and, and, and the, the bills would start rolling. So one when I was constantly aware of the need to prep things before we went into the studio. So early on, we did a lot of faffing about in studios, but we were pretty quick. I mean, we were, we were pretty quick. I mean, for example, Moments in Love, Anne had got a, given me a sample that she'd got on a cassette. And at the weekend, I messed around with it. And then the Monday, we met for the session and she said, oh, how did the, uh, how did the sample go? And I loaded it up and I played the three or four notes that had sounded good when I was sampling it. Uh, and Anne, because she's got perfect pitch, goes, oh, okay, that's great. Then recorded it in because she'd memorized what I'd played and I had no idea. And then we started building it with the eighth notes voice uh, looping away and Gary was doing all the reverbs uh, and suddenly we had a track and we sat down had a cup of tea and what are we going to do with it and I said well let's make it the most boring track we can let's make it 11 or 12 minutes and then a discussion moved to making it into a nine bar loop so we were basically creating this thing we didn't know what it was but we knew we had something and then pushed it off into all these crazy ideas and then Paul Morley came up with the title moments in love and it went through many iterations and it's never really been finished it's always been a work in progress we never managed to cut it down to a three and a half minute single it just doesn't work um so in that instance we created that entirely in the studio from the get-go oh it's time that that that's how, honestly because that's probably one of my one of my all-time favorite tracks it's still and still sounds amazing today. It's the, the, the sound of it. It's just, it's, the production is amazing on that track. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we, we got the stems of that, and I was listening to Gary's um, drum track, because uh, there's a snare in there and things. And what I realized was that he was playing, if you like, various reverbs and gating them and closing them. So there'd be a long one, there'd be a splash, there'd be a short one, and there'd be a tight room. But he then recorded them and left them in stereo and didn't have to worry about them anymore. So he kind of printed this kind of performance of muting and gating reverbs. And it gave the track a life of its own. And also, I was talking to him about this just the other day, is we had no idea what tempo things were in those days because there weren't BPM machines or anything like that. And he used to count 11 beats on his stopwatch and the 11 beats, when you count them in milliseconds, gives you your basic delay time. And then you can multiply that by, divide by two, multiply by three, diddle -diddle, get the triplets and all that sort of business. And he would dial these up. And no matter how accurate you are in stop starting the stopwatch, they're always slightly out. 
But that means that when you start spinning uh, your delays back into the original and then remix, you get a roll. You get this roll happening, which you don't get with a modern um, system where you go eighth notes or quarter note triplets because it's perfectly in time. And our delays were always just a bit out. Um, and it ended up being that Gary and I would generally record and, and, and uh, design the kind of come up with the backing track, record it, and then Ad would play live on top. And that had the other aspect of this machine thundering away and Anne playing across the top. And again, it was a mix of a machine bed and a human playing. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, it's fair to say, I always think that electronic music could sometimes be referred to as sort of cold and soulless, but I always thought with your sound, there was a lot of warmth and soul in your music. Because um, I always thought you had sort of, you were a pop band, but I thought you had a bit of a, maybe a punk sensibility about you. That's what I love. There was real passion and soul. It wasn't just cold and soulless. And I think that's what I liked about your music. I think that's a very uh, astute assumption because you've mentioned punk and Gary and I again were talking about this other day and the influence of Malcolm McLaren and he was seminal in that well why not won't you do it can't you do it well let's do it and you know he, he often said things like well if it says you can't turn right turn right and see what happens and that was working on Duck Rock I think imbued me with a kind of well why not let's just try this and when I did sessions with anybody else the best people to work with, people like Kate Bush, for example, would go, I wonder what this will sound like, okay? And you have a play and you do something. Whereas you might work with someone else and they'll go, I want this to sound like this. And you go, well, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> it's not like that, you know? And, and then and Trevor and a few others, and Kate was very good like that. She'd go, okay, well, put it in some reverb and let's spin it. And what have we got, you know? Yeah, I mean, I've, got, I'm just thinking then. I mean, you've worked with some amazing artists over the years. So, what have been some of your favourite sessions of of other bands that you've been working with? Um, there were so many. There were so many. I think it's a hard one, often, often, I would say, getting out without being discovered as a fraud was a key one, um, and um, well, essentially. I regarded a lot of those sessions as kind of hoovering up. People would do things and go, oh, that's no good, doesn't sound very good. And I go, oh, well, I'll keep that, because I think that's quite an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because they all had an idea, the press at the time were going, the Fairlight is going to remove orchestras and orchestras are going to be finished. And I spent a lot of my time disavowing people of that view, uh, but sampling things and they didn't like them. And I just keep them. And one thing that springs to mind, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of, I've always been a fan of like good cover versions. And obviously you've done the, one of the best, in my opinion, cover, you know, of Kiss with, but now the Sir Tom Jones. Yes. We think about a good sign of a, of a cover version is when a band or, or an artist does a complete version that's, that's, that's their own. And that's what I liked about this, for your version. And it's totally different to the, you know the prince's version and that's sort of what was it like working with with tom jones on that that must have been a, a great experience it was and it was rather odd actually as well because having got the agreement out of his management that we should try we did the backing track without him 
and he was in Las Vegas or something. So we set the tempo, we set the mood, we put all that together and recorded a basic backing track, and the sent the temp, uh, and we sent the tape to him in in Vegas, and then he recorded his vocals. So we had no idea if he was going to like it or not, and we had no idea if it was going to work. When we uh, got the tape back and we started listening to what he'd done, we were just knocked out. Absolutely, he added so much to it, and he obviously got what it was. And there's a there's a there's a clip I've seen somewhere of him. Um, I think he got a cassette from us, and he went to play it in his apartment. He turned it on, he turned it up, and he said, "Oh, this is fantastic! Uh, <laughs> it's going to be a hit. It's great. It's great." Um, because it had that thing that we created that had atmosphere, that, that if you like had soul, and it grabbed him as a singer. And when he started singing, you can you can hear it because the backing gave him that platform to express himself. Yeah, and I mean he's great. And just to, to think, he's you know he's still he's still making music, and he's you know he's a judge on the voice and stuff. It's great that you know he's still still um, you know doing it, Tom Jones. Yeah, well, Ro Rosie and I went to see him some years ago in uh, the Northampton Cricket Ground, and there are about twenty-five thousand people in there. And he had a—he's got a nine-piece band, I think. Sounded fantastic, really, really excellent. Great show, great show. Around that time, um, you did well, quite a few top of the pops performances, and I wondered how that was because obviously, again, for anyone listening who doesn't remember Top of the Pops, it was the show that we all watched when we were growing up. And how was it for you to actually be? performing on this iconic TV show. Top of the Pops, when, was it a Thursday or Friday? Thursday, yeah, Thursday night. It was recorded on a Tuesday. That's right, yes. And the call time was 9.30 in the morning. Wow. For the artist, and you would start your recording at 5.30. <laughs> wow. So there would, you'd be there all day. So eventually, you'd start off with blocking, then you'd have lighting, then you'd have sound, then you'd have makeup, and then you'd do the recording. So each time you'd be to, excuse me, each time you'd be backwards and forwards to your dressing room, waiting for the next stage as they lit the stage, da -da 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 -da, did all the setting up, and then they bring the uh, the audience in, and you'd get up and you might. Sometimes, generally speaking, it was one take, and. As we did on the tube, we played ours live, which was a ner bit nerve-wracking because we'd only ever sat in a studio and mucked about, really. Um, and so I think I've seen, you know, YouTube videos of these various performances. And, and you've got to remember from our, my point of view, certainly, it was, it was, wow, we got away with that one. We, we, it all worked and nothing <laughs> fell over. Yeah. And then... You look at the now the benefit of hindsight. Look back at the audience, and they're all they're all standing there, looking quite shocked and going, "What the hell is this?" Yeah, I love and, it. And I'm going, "That's good, actually. That's that's." Uh, uh, so technically, it was quite challenging, and um, it's in you know a lot a bit of a slog, top of the box. But in it's essential in terms of in those days promoting the sales of your discs. Yeah. I mean, different time. I mean, you, must, you must have played Top of the Pops a few times then with, with your various... Yeah, uh, over, the, over the years, yeah. We did, what, we did one with Sir Tom, and he did a live vocal, and that was amazing. Oh, yeah, to, remember that. To a backing track. 
Yeah. Extraordinary. You're standing on the piano. Oh, they just look like you're having so much fun. That's the kind of what I got from watching all the old clips. Just the, how much yeah, fun. Yeah, I used to get in a bit of trouble from Anne because I was enjoying myself too much. Ah, like, well, that's what it's playing, about. <laughs> playing, my qu playing my QWERTY keyboard and uh, there's, a, there's a clip somewhere from when we are in Japan doing Paranoia and there's a bit of a guitar solo in Paranoia. So I had a guitar, which obviously clearly wasn't plugged in. And during the day, you'd see where you, they'd come up for the close-ups and all that sort of business. And so during the recording, I'd flip the guitar over and I was playing it on the back. And um, it, uh, yeah. Wow. It amused me, but not everyone else saw the funny side, I think. Oh, no, it just looks so fun. And because it, it's hard to, I mean, you were so much success that you had back then. I mean, how, how was all that? How did you cope with the fame? Did it, did it sit easy with you, fame, or was it hard to sort of get used to? Um, having worked with the Frankies, and having seen what happened to them, and oh. being mocked, we decided that we'd try and keep a low as profile as possible. So it wasn't yeah. until we got to Kiss that we ever really appeared on England. Yeah. That's and that was purposeful, cause, yeah. because... There's, what, there's, there's quite a few bad things with being recognised in the street, but a much worse thing about being recognised in the street is then not being recognised. Yeah, in the street. yeah, yeah, exactly. So to be not to be not recognised in the street, I mean, no one really knows what Bernie Taupin looks like. That's true. Yeah, that's very true. But then you see what he's what he's achieved. Yeah. Exactly, and and the modern the modern process seems to be, whilst they're faking it, they're making sure that everybody knows who they are and what they look like. Yeah. And they go, okay. All right. I think you you had it just right. So write all these fantastic selling singles, but then you can still walk down the road or go to the supermarket. Certainly, because it's a it's a transient thing, and yeah. it's an expensive thing, and. Um, as the Frankies found out, you know, when they were taking limos and taxis everywhere, someone has to pay. At the time, they don't tell you it's you. Yeah. So what's, and again, this will be a hard question because obviously it's a bit like choosing your favourite child, but which Art of Noise tracks would hold the most affection for you and why? Mm, the, again, I know it's yeah, a hard question. Yeah, no. I, I was thinking about this the other day. The most affection for me is Instruments of Darkness, because it's got everything that all the popular, and I use that in inverted commas, tracks have got. Samples, um, a machine gun as a bass drum, weird. Um, I played a bit of a tune in there, so there's a bit of one-fingered keyboarding of mine. Um, and I just love the atmosphere, and we're, we're looking at it now, actually, and, and figuring out what we're going to do with it, because it's just yeah. such a great track. In terms of, if I had to put, yeah, yeah, I would say if I, uh, the one track I would consider as embodying everything that for, for me represents what we did in our greater moments, whatever you want to call it, in our moments of complete desperation, Instruments of Darkness yeah. is it because it's got so many different facets in it. It has. Uh, and at the end, end, Anne plays this fantastically laconic, beautiful piano that doesn't resolve. And I love that. It's like, oh, it doesn't finish. And you're left thinking, what happened? And she did this, always does this trick. 
if she'd get to the end of something but not finish it. Yeah. And, and you go, oh, oh, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> Again, that's what we said. I think that's what I was drawn to your music because it's, it's, you do very, very good, extremely good pop music, but there's almost, like I said, there's that slight little punk rock element or a little experimental element that you always throw in. So it's, that's what I like about it. You know, it's that there's a, there's obviously melody there and you've got the, that pop sensibility, but there was a little bit of experimentalism as well, which I think it's, you just had the right balance. I think, yes, it was many things. And as Trevor said in his book recently, and I went to his book launch, he said that I didn't come from a musical background per se. And I would bring, I think he said, quote, unquote, all these weird sounds into the studio and a musician would never think of doing that. Oh. But that was why they, they had me doing it because they go, Oh, uh, cash till. Oh, right. Let's Gary puts a bit of reverb on it, yeah. a bit of spin. And suddenly you got a, something that has a tune that no one has heard before. Yeah. It's a fantastic way of working. You know? Yeah. So what's, um, plans have you got for the rest of the year? I know obviously now we're, <laughs> it is near the end of the year and you've got these, wonderful gigs that everyone's looking forward to so these um uh obviously you'll do these shows but is there any maybe possibility of, of doing a further tour of the uk at some point or europe we never say never hmm. um it rather depends how these shows go yeah um, we are making we're making an effort to reshape the 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 sonic landscape a bit in my head Back in the 80s, we never really had any sort of sub-bass. And if you, you consider what's happened in the intervening 40 years, sonically, things have got a lot better and a lot worse. By which I mean, if you go somewhere and there's a decent sound system and there's someone who knows what they're doing, the bottom end that you get is phenomenal. The yeah. energy is fantastic. The, 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 the bad bits for me are... MP3s and other delivery systems where the sound has been crunched to hell and it's a bit like Gary once described it as someone putting nails into a tin can and shaking it. Um, yeah. People listening to things on terrible speakers and it, kind of imagining how it sounds. So that's the bad bit. But you go to a live show, you go to a big stadium, you go to a night good club, they've got a decent sound system and the bass is working. It's fantastic. It's so exciting. Uh, and we are, I'm really pursuing that as a, as a mode to, to revise what we've did and bring it sonically into uh, a more up-to-date um, shape, if you like. Um, because basically back then you didn't really have that much bass, to be honest. Well, I'd say it's fantastic. And I'm sure everyone listening to this can't wait for these shows. And I want to just take an opportunity to thank you for spending some time with us today to, to um, tell us these wonderful stories. So thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and thank you. <laughs>